William is a restaurant critic for the Daily Telegraph in the UK. He was the editor of Waitrose Food magazine for many years, and he appears in the UK regularly as a judge on British MasterChef. He's the author of A History of Food and 100 Recipes, and his most recent book, which you can find for sale outside, is The Restaurant, A History of Eating Out. Ladies and gentlemen, give a gigantic, howling Auckland welcome to William Sitwell. William, we've just emerged from a period where just about every restaurant in the world had to shut down for a while. What do you think we've learned from that extended period of restaurantlessness? Uh, well, I learned not to publish a book on the day when every single restaurant in the world is shut. <laughs> this book that we're talking about came out uh, during lockdown in the UK. Uh, I thought this would be a fantastic opportunity because it enabled people to enjoy, a, you know, vicariously my history of eating out. I mean, it, I, it was either going to be a fantastic success because of that or an absolute abject failure. Um, and it did mean that, you know, there were no events occurring so I couldn't promote it. So it wasn't a colossal success that I'd hoped as a result. Um, so that's one thing I've learned. Try and get your timing right rather than catastrophically wrong. The other things I've learned, I don't know. You know, the, the, the pandemic was interesting for hospitality and with great respect to people in hospitality who spent quite a lot of time you know, complaining about the dire state of, uh, of, of their industry. A lot of restaurants were propped up for quite a long time and, and very possibly uh, slightly unrealistically because normally there's a big churn in the restaurant world and places you know, naturally close. And um, our, the UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak, uh, in one of his great you know, <laughs> pitches for being PM really, uh, came out into this great uh, speech where he you know, extended a, a hand of friendship and saving you know, saviour to, to, to the British hospitality industry. And I actually think a lot of restaurants existed for far longer than they should have done. So do you think net restaurants have a natural lifespan then? I think a lot, I think a lot do. Um, sure, well, you know, some restaurants last forever and you have to sort of wonder why. Some restaurants don't last for very long, you sometimes wonder why. I often think that it's quite clear when a restaurant shuts why it shuts because it's just frankly terrible. There are some restaurants that just that have monumentally bad luck. There are locations that never seem to quite work, and someone, you know, some lunatic thinks that they can go in there, spend another, you know, few million pounds on it, bring it to life, and it fails again. So some places do have sort of a bit of bad luck. I don't think that that critics these days have the power that they once had to shut restaurants. I think we're one of many voices. So um, I think restaurants tend to sort of shut for for natural reasons. Quite how long it is, I don't think anybody really knows. It's one of the great mysteries in hospitality, why somewhere lasts for so long and why some places don't. I think that the, you know, there, are, there are trends that develop in food that means that you know, people, places can sort of exist, but the kind of fashionista places that open for five minutes and shut is probably, you know, I'm glad they shut if, people, if they're only there for sort of vacuous, uh, fashion-y reasons. It's always a sure sign that a restaurant is about to close when the staff get hold of the in-house music system <laughs> and you're hearing like heavy metal or sort of hip-hop when you walk into a place. I, think I don't mind that. I think restaurants should close if they offer you a QR, the opportunity to look at a menu via a QR code. <laughs> you know? And it does happen. I think restaurants should close if they don't offer a telephone number so you can actually ring them up. Uh, I think restaurants should close if they can't actually give you a decent welcome. Now, the great Michael Winner, who was the Sunday Times restaurant critic, used to say that, have you, have you got a reservation, is n was not a welcome. Uh, they, you know, and he used to rail about that. He used to go, have you got a, have you got a reservation, is not a welcome. And you, you know, when you go to a great restaurant, they sort of, you know, the first thing they say is, good evening. You know? uh, or are we lucky enough to, that, you know, are you dining with us this evening? It's much better. Are you dining with us this, this lunchtime? Rather than, have you got a reservation? The new reopened Langans in London, um, they put a guy outside the door whose first thing to ask you was, have you booked? It's like, you know, we don't want you in here. Anyway, I wrote about that, Giles Corrin wrote about it, and the man was swiftly removed. <laughs> <laughs> you were born into the illustrious Sitwell family, the great poet. Edith Sitwell was your great aunt. Did you know her as a child, William? No, I, she predeceased me, so she died in 1964. I was born in 1969, so... Uh, or, you know, I, I sort of felt I got to know her through, I mean, her, she had two, two younger brothers, Sir Chevrel, 
um, who in private eye used to call him Sir Several Sitwells because he was rather than Sir Sir Chevrel. It was rather, it's a difficult name to say, especially when you've had a long lunch. Um, uh, we called him Sashi and Osbert, her younger brothers. Osbert predeceased me by a couple of years. Um, uh, but I knew her younger brother, Sir Chevrel, Sashi, very well. And um, I sort of feel I've got to know her through learning her poems. I, I spent uh, a year or two learning the poetry of Facade, which is a very, you know, it's quite technically difficult to recite. It's what I call early white rap. And, um, uh, and it does very, it appears like that because William Walton, who wrote the music, and I discovered that William Walton's niece uh, lives in, uh, in Auckland, which is rather amazing. Um, he wrote this music that was rather like rap music in that he took modern tunes and twisted them, uh, uh, you know, and reinvented them. And the poems are literally wrapped to the sound of the music, the very pulsating beats, and where the, where the words, you know, don't necessarily have any meaning, you know. When the satyrs are chattering, glimpse of the flattering glimpse of the forest and hearts, saw the beauty of marrow and cucumber and cirrus will join in the dance. When the satyrs can flatter the flat leaf root and the gherkin green and the marrow, sequibinus silenus will settle between us, the gourd and the cucumber Baba, I have no idea what that means, but it sounds <laughs> quite. Um, so I, I sort of, when I was learning facade, I kind of learned to sort of hate her because I thought this is so complicated. And then once I got it into my head as a sort of muscle memory, my respect for her. Um, really grew, and she was an extraordinary woman. She was ahead of her time. She was a very brave poet. I mean, she wrote a poem called Still Falls the Rain, Black as Our Loss, Black as the 1949 Nails Upon the Cross. This was a, a poem that echoed the sound of the, the, the bombers coming over London, and it's a very anti-war poem. It's a dangerous thing to do in war, to, particularly in those days. She actually read it uh, at an officer's mess once, and uh, the noise of the sirens appeared halfway through her uh, declaiming this poem, and all the officers sort of hid under tables, and she continued as the bombs went off, you know. But she was a remarkable woman, had an extraordinary dress sense as well. Yes, you mentioned when you were uh, interviewed by Kim Hill on her show on Radio NZ that as a kid you used to try on her clothes. What kind of clothes are we talking about here? Uh, It's quite a normal thing to do, you know. Um, Which one of us can honestly say we haven't tried on a dead poet's clothes every once in a while throughout our... Well, I lived in this beautiful old house in Northamptonshire in the middle of the English countryside, and um, her robes, her gowns, her turbans, her rings were, you know, around the house, here, there, and everywhere. And it seemed a natural thing to do. You know, I mean, I actually used to wear some of them as dressing gowns, you know, if I had to go and, you know, put the, put the bins out early in the morning. They were quite heavy, uh, you know, and she, she always said that she couldn't wear fashionable clothes. And it wasn't an affectation. She dressed like that because it was, she felt she was a sort of throwback to, to, to her Plantagenet ancestors. And, uh, you know, we'd, we, if, if you saw a turban that she'd worn, and it happened to be one that Cecil Beaton had photographed her in, you know, pop it on. Why not? Why not? Indeed. <laughs> I just didn't think anyone would ever mention it. But uh. <laughs> You were a journalist for some years for the extremely middle-brow uh, British tabloid, The Daily Express. Tell me about some of the stunts your editor would ask you to involve yourself in in order to get some fabulous front page story. Maybe I was an age where uh, I was a kind of Sunday Express stuntman, really. Um, you know, the, the, the most ludicrous story that was going in the office, I would normally be sent off, uh, you know, to, to, to play my part. There was this story that came in. There was a, apparently Britain's most useless postman was a postman in Nottingham. So I was dis- dispatched early one morning to watch Britain's most useless postman deliver letters really badly. Anyway, and I got to Nottingham, and I got to this particular suburb of Nottingham, and I sort of laid in wait with the photographer, and this dainty postman turned up, and you've never seen a man deliver letters more perfectly. You know, trotted up and down each, uh, each path, didn't skip over a hedge, opened and shut gates, you know. I mean, I've never, so I rang up the news desk, I said, this is a great postman. What is this? And, and this, I remember this the news editor at the time was called Les. You went, or oh, push him in a hedge, will you? You know, <laughs> it was always like that. And Paul Dacre, the editor of great editor of the Daily Mail, um, once put a picture of Elizabeth Taylor on um, in on page three of the Mail um, in her nighty in her nightgown in the Betty Ford Clinic, and the Express thought this was rather unfair to portray someone in their pajamas, so they dispatched me. 
um, to the house of Paul Dacre to knock on his door so our photographer who's hiding in the bushes could spring out and photograph him in his pajamas. Um, I'd come straight from some nightclub as I was a little bit tired, so to speak. I decided after knocking on the door that I would put on an Irish accent. And it's the sort of thing you do, you know, in the middle of the night when you're knocking on the editor of the Daily Mail's front door. And his wife, I think, opened it and I sort of, I don't know, I had a clipboard or something which was my cover. And I sort of said, is Mr. Dacre there? I've come to see him. I, I, there's a, I've got a package for him. Uh, could he come and sign it now? And uh, <laughs> she immediately shut the door and they saw a rustling in the bushes above camera and obviously thought it was an Irish terrorist. So I was hastily sent back to the office and um, dispatched on some other ludicrous story. I mean, one of the most ridiculous things, and I'm sort of ashamed to admit it, um, I wrote about this uh, resort in the middle of Swedish Lapland. Um, it was a sort of puff travel piece. And I was at home on Saturday, and it was for the Sunday paper. And they said to me, um, this is terrible, you know, you need some quotes. Um, and I went, okay, um, how do I get quotes for people who are staying in this hotel? Anyway, um, I found this old ropey pornographic magazine in the house. I looked in the index and saw these names and invented, uh, Olaf Schmidt uh, says, I like to jump into the sauna after being in the snow. And uh, Fritz von Warschenstaff added, nothing gives me greater pleasure than to throw hot cold water onto the coals and look out into the beautiful night sky. And I wrote all this garbage and they said, that's absolutely fantastic. <laughs> How you got those quotes, we have no idea and I never let on. Not until now. How did you then become a food and restaurant writer after being the kind of person who tries to catch Paul Dacre in his pajamas from that? Yeah, there's an, there's an ending to that story. I got back to the office and they actually said, look, because you didn't get a picture of his pajamas, we'll photograph you in your pajamas. Okay? Right. <laughs> right? So um, I went home and put on some pajamas that so happened to be my grandfather's pajamas, because it's the only pajamas I had. They were beautiful sort of almost silk white pajamas. And in the first edition, I was in these pajamas. And uh, the editor looked at it and went, they don't look like pajamas, just like some, looks like a nice silk shirt. You need to change your pajamas. So I went to M&S and bought some stripy pajamas. And it always occurred to me, it was rather strange that anyone who knew would have noticed that uh, I was wearing Sir Cheveril Sitwell's pajamas in the first edition, but changed into a second pair into the second edition. <laughs> it was rather strange. But I, I, I landed on this magazine called Waitrose Food Illustrated in 1999, someone had mentioned that there was a job as deputy going, and I was sort of languishing, trying to work out what to do next, uh, having escaped from the Sunday Express somehow. So there was a job going as deputy for this magazine that had, was launched as Food Illustrated and tied up with the, the great supermarket. And uh, the, current, the then editor came and interviewed me in my flat, actually, in Notting Hill. And I remember it was a very curious interview because she basically... I made her a cup of coffee and she sat down and said, so what do you know about food? And I said, well, I eat. And I was going to develop this a little bit, you know, I had this line. And then she cut me off and talked, about, talked at me, mainly about how she wasn't feeling very well and a friend of hers had recently died. And it's just kind of odd interview. Anyway, an hour and a half later and she gave me the job. So uh, when people ask me, how do I become the editor of a great food magazine? I say, well, just tell them you eat because that's how I got <laughs> You know, it was weird. So I got the job as deputy, and then a few years later, she stepped aside, and I did everything I could in my power to get the job, because I realized, actually, that this was a very exciting world, because as a journalist, food is the greatest subject. It's about culture, politics, health, life, poverty, economics, misery, happiness, fun, frivolity, seriousness, hospitality. I mean, it is limitless. And I felt that I could really do something with this magazine and bring great writers and great photographers and great illustrators to it and make something of it. So uh, I sort of did that for a bit. One of the great correspondents you tried to bring into the magazine but failed to publish was one of Australia's greatest gourmands, Sir Les Patterson. Mm, yeah. uh, what happened when you tried to get Sir Les to write? Well, Sir Les Patterson, as some of you may remember, who, who, who said once that he literally sat on the international cheese board. Mm. Um, <laughs> he, he would occasionally pull, a, pull an Australian brie out of his back pocket, yes, I think. Yes, he would. Yes, he? he would. Yeah. And I was very privileged to know Barry, and he, was a, he was, became a friend of my family's, basically because he was a fan of my grandfather's. And I remember staying at my grandfather's house once, and I saw these postcards from Edna on the kitchen table. 
And my grandfather's um, housekeeper, Gertrude, was sort of muffling about this, how this strange person kept on writing to my grandfather. Calling herself Dame Edna Everidge. Dame Edna Everidge. And, um, she could, and I said, this was, this was in the late 80s, a couple of years before my grandfather died, when Edna ruled the airwaves. She was the queen of the Saturday night schedule. But Gertrude and her husband only ever really watched wrestling and switched the television off in the evening. And I said, come on. And I said to my father, we've got to get Barry Humphreys down here. And he came down and, and um, had some books signed and became uh, a good friend. And my father actually um, persuaded Edna to uh, open our village flower show a, a couple of times. And I never forget, we had this old coach from, you know, from the sort of early 19th century. And uh, Ed, Barry as Edna stepped into it, did this very long tour around the top of the garden and then stepped out basically where he'd got into in the first place. I never get looked out at all these old, you know, ladies of the village, I remember, and, um, and sort of said, as I look around today, I see a beautiful array of flowers, one or two cactuses. Said, <laughs> looking at them. And then Barry had written this poem with, that ended... Um, as for me, I'm no ordinary mother and wife. I was Dame Edith Sitwell in a previous life. <laughs> which I thought was magic. And, and I interviewed Barry as Edna and talked to him on his own, her own, back in the house. Just me and Edna. And it was surreal because he completely became that character. It was fascinating. Anyway, I asked Barry, I said, would Celeste write a piece for Waitrose Food Illustrated? Okay? <laughs> a tribute to Australian cheese, perhaps. <laughs> And he wrote this absolutely diabolically disgusting piece. It was, piece, it was absolutely fantastic. Um, and I remember one of the great lines was, he, he talked about how on a, on a stopover somewhere, he showed an air hostess his blue mauve vein. <laughs> and uh, needless to say, my client uh, refused to publish it. And I said to Barry, look, I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, he, he went, was it a bit strong for Waitrose, was it? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <Great story. laughs> So, so, you know, I, yeah, it's, um, it goes in the, the bin of the greatest pieces never published. And he, he, he also, he, he was quite a good little caricaturist. He, I've got this wonderful thing at home, which is a, uh, a caricature of Celeste um, waving a flag and holding cheese. It's fantastic. What a legend. Your book covers the history of eating out. It's a kind of a personalised account. I don't think you, in the introduction, you make it clear it's not comprehensive. It's kind of focused on the things you're particularly interested in. Sort of hovers around, really, the evolution of eating out, sort of in Britain, but reaches out to the rest of the world. But you can begin with the ancient Romans in Pompeii, which on that day in AD 79 was smothered in volcanic ash and lava, and so provides an extraordinary snapshot of what was happening on that specific day in that year in what was a kind of a resort town for the ancient yeah. Romans just south of Rome. What, what do we know about how the Romans ate out? What have we learnt about that from those ruins? Well, you, you're right, this is a deeply selfish book because, you know, in 80,000 words, you can only cover so much and there's, you know, the, the history of eating out is very complex and very global and I had to sort of select my own pathway and in looking at where to begin, it just struck me as being sensible to start in Pompeii because it was thriving. As you say, it was a resort town. It was a very fashionable town. Um, and it had everything from hotels and inns and taverns to a thriving brothel scene. Um, rich and poor um, would uh, hang out in bars, you know, rubbing shoulders with each other. Um, so there was a, 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 a fairly uh, egalitarian approach was, there. Yeah, People I think you see the, the, early, yeah, I think the democratization of hospitality yeah. was alive and kicking in Pompeii. And I think what's interesting is that uh, if you speak to archaeologists um, who've sort of studied ancient feces in the sewers beneath Pompeii... Someone's got to do that job. Someone's got to do it. They'll tell you that the evidence of shit that's 4,000 years old uh, will tell you that the rich and the poor ate a very similar diet. Uh, because you know, they knew where the rich and poor lived and they could therefore tell. And they ate a good fresh diet, you know, fresh fish. They had, um, in, in, on the evidence that you find when you see two groups of people who had who di died um, and covered in ash, and the, you know, they've, they're, they're, they've been able to somehow measure the, the dental records of these people. And they found also that the teeth of the rich and poor were relatively similar. Um, so 
Which suggests the same level of nutrition. Absolutely, yes. and the same eating the same sorts of things. And the extraordinary thing about Pompeii, and because it is this snapshot that's captured, you know, it would have been a beautiful morning, you would have seen a plume of smoke just you know, coming out from, from Vesuvius. Little did they know the devastation, devastation that would happen. But you therefore have a town that's frozen in time. And it's as interesting to me as a foodie to anal analyze that than any other kind of historian, because you can literally see the food that was being served. You can almost find the grains that were being used to, to, to make bread. You can see the early evidence of f small, round, flat breads that aren't dissimilar to pizza. Um, you can see evidence of not just the wine that was being sold, but the prices of wine written on the walls of these ancient taverns. So you can imagine you know, the wines that w were, were growing on the fertile slopes of, 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 the, of, of, um, of Vesuvius. So it was a very thriving uh, era. And the word hospitality, of course, comes from hospies. It was a, an absolute fundamental principle of people in that age. And as the Roman Empire spread its wings, took its single currency, took its laws, it took the, the philosophy of hospitality uh, as far as its tentacles stretched. What do we know about the wine they drank? They often write about drinking wine. Would it have been sweet sort of rot gut or what do we know? There's an indication about this on one of the menus where they talk about the different strengths which suggests that you can have it watered down, which again suggested it might have been thick and sweet. Whether or not you could get a, a nice fragrant pinot <laughs> or a soft, uh, gently acidic grass of uh, Chardonnay, I don't know. How inclined were the Romans to mix? Uh, indulgence of food with indulgence of sex. You mentioned brothels there. Were they often housed in the same establishment? Where's, where's this going? I mean, for God's sake. Um, yes, I think so. I mean, smutty no, 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 no. I mean, as you know from my book, that I just because I couldn't resist it. And when you write your own book, you can put what the hell you like in it. In a way, I mean, the critics might savage you, but there are some very choice bits of graffiti on the walls across Pompeii, and they are very, very funny. And it's evident that people were carousing. That. Not only were there you know, brothels attached to reasonably priced inns, there were also rooms at the back where they would have been maybe playing cards and so on. So you could see how society was sort of disseminating. Why did emperors often take a stand against such eating? Well, lawmakers, rulers, have never liked the idea of people congregating and speaking freely because that's where information, disinformation is spread. It's where... Uh, Trust is built up between well, people. Precisely. Yeah. And... Um, the, the emperors certainly uh, went around knocking on the doors and frequenting taverns. And if you scan forward in history, you look at Charles II in England. Obviously, he was slightly paranoid about what happens to kings, given what happened to his father. And he was quite keen to shut down some of the taverns because he again thought that it was a, these were centers of chat and that could lead to, you know, uh, disorder. You write quite a bit about the Ottoman Empire and the kind of food that... Uh, that was produced in the kitchens of the, the Sultan Mehmet II, and that's a sublime cuisine, Turkish food. It, it blends Eastern Mediterranean food with the food of Central Asia. It's a, it's, it's a fantastic synthesis there. I was struck as I was reading this, you talked about how they would often eat on carpets sitting on the floor from shared plates. Is it pretty much just a Western European thing to eat your own single portion of food from your own plate? Because just looking back, I, I, it occurred to me that just about every other culture in the world has eaten from shared plates. Yeah, it's, a, it's a very good point. It's really interesting. And perhaps it's acutely English, the idea of, you know, it's mine. <laughs> you know, don't, <laughs> don't steal my chips. Um, whereas the ancient idea of hospitality was indeed sharing. And it's amusing when you know, we started seeing restaurants that last sort of 20 years come up with this idea of there's this really novel idea of sharing plates. And you kind of go, you know, this is 3,000 years old. You know? So um, I think it is. But, you know, food is always cyclical. And if you look at uh, trends these days, uh, it goes from sharing to non-sharing, authentic to inauthentic. I mean, you only have to really, in terms of, you know, recipes follow the trajectory of Jamie Oliver. You know, it goes from, you know, five minutes, you know, the fastest ever, to 15, to 30, an hour, and then it's like the most authentic, and then the, the, the cheats, 
version, and then, you know, so, and, and you get, and recipe writers are always rebelling against other recipe writers and saying, you know, that's not the authentic, I'm going to give you the true thing, and then the next person goes, well, I'm going to give you the simple one. So these things always go cyclically, so it will go from sharing to selfish to sharing, to Italy, take off and take your hands off my chips to please have my chips, you know, so, uh, and it sort of, people like to peg it to cultural changes and so on, so... It's quite fun, really, looking at that. My first book that I wrote was a sort of a potted history of Constantinople, and it was the capital of the what was known as the Eastern Roman Empire, or Byzantium, as it's more commonly known these days. And there was a wonderful story I found of a marriage between a Byzantine princess called Theophanu, who travelled to Rome to marry the son of the Holy Roman Emperor, Otto II. And at the big wedding feast, she was already seen as this ethereal, pristine, unspeakably beautiful and uh, extraordinary heavenly creature. At the wedding feast, they sat down to eat their food with their hands, as they commonly did in Rome in those days. We're talking about the 11th century here. And from her, the sleeve of her gown, she produced a small two-pronged golden fork. And the court accounts say that the assembly just gasped at this, and then she ate her food delicately with the fork. Some people were stunned by how elegant that was, and others thought it was sinful and unchristian <laughs> and complained about it. What do you know about the introduction of the fork and eating, eating irons? Well, it's a, I, I have a sort of beliefs? very great personal interest in this because my great grandfather, who was a phenomenal man of uh, great literary talent, um, he wrote a, a number of books, including um, Leaden Jewelry in the Middle Ages, a short history of Rotherham. Um, uh, the origins of part singing, um, and his, his most seminal book, which was A Short History of the Fork. And, a short uh, one. Presumably he, a, he could have written a much longer one. At some yeah, point. well, who knows? I mean, he was an extraordinary man who, uh, he, he, never, he always refused to dine with anybody because he said that uh, arguments or conversations that he wasn't completely in control of interfered with, his, with the functioning of his gastric juices and prevented him from sleeping at night. Anyway, uh, one of the many books that this great Edwardian character would scribble in the boudoir of his house. I discovered in uh, my first book an amazing man called Thomas Coriat, who in the early 1700s decided to flee his Dorset village and go traveling around Europe. And there was a day in Italy where he made two extraordinary discoveries. One was um, what he called the umbrella, which he said that the Italians used to shield their heads from the sun. And he told his friends about that, and they went, why would anyone want to do that? And of course, you know, umbrellas became quite useful in due course. And the other one was a, was a fork. And he spied these smart Italian gentlemen prodding their meat with a fork. And he told his friends about that who laughed at him and said, why would anyone want to use a fork? Because, of course... A fork is only a social nicety. You don't need a fork to get food from plate to mouth. And, you know, it was always the hand and bread. You know, soup comes from words sop, which actually related to the piece of bread that you use to dip in the soup. So it's only really social niceties that have seen the fork go from a two-pronged to a three-pronged to a four-pronged thing that is literally... Um, you know, a, a dainty, unnecessary thing. I mean, these days you have a thing, isn't it called a spork? It's like a spoon and a fork. Oh, yes. And of course, we've gone back these days, we would just go, you know, we don't need forks anymore, or sporks, or spoons. We just use our own hands. So again, that's cyclical as well, isn't it? I'm struck how often the kitchen is the crucible for all this sort of political and social change. You write about how Henry VIII, King Henry VIII, famously had dissolved a great many of Britain's monasteries, which left a lot of people out of work. Tell me how the shutting down of those monasteries led to the creation of the great English pub. Well, the people who worked in these places, I mean, these were great refractories, weren't they? I mean, um, this was a time, and you still see some semblance of it in some parts of Europe, in some parts of the world, where strangers would travel, and it would be expected that you would alight at a monastery, and that's where you would, you know, that's where you would get food. And so it was a real problem for travellers when the monasteries were sort of disestablished, because where would people get, get rest? But of course, you know, human endeavour and ingenuity is, it, you know, always comes up with new solutions. And so gradually you saw inns occurring. And actually, if you look at the, uh, you look at, uh, I mean, across uh, the, the map of Britain, 
you can see where the inns and taverns developed, and I think inns were where you had a horse, a tavern is more uh, a place where, you just, where you'd have a meal as, as well as staying the night. You can see them at intersections of where the great coach uh, routes went up and down the country. Um, so it's what I call the, the theory of unintended consequences, that the need to dine out, the need to have sustenance was fulfilled by entrepreneurial people who probably were cooking in monasteries. And exactly the same thing happens in the turn of the 18th century in French revolutionary France, because there's Robespierre chopping our heads off of all the toffs. And of course, those households had a huge amount of you know, staffs from literally you know, the, the, the sort of hotelier, the manager, to all, to all of the men in their, and women in their, their liveries. So they needed work. And what happened is they slowly gravitated towards provincial towns and cities and set up restaurants. They had the livery of their, their master. And so you would find quite smartly dressed um, staff. That's where we get the formalized garb of the waiter. Well, yeah, absolutely, because they, were, they came from the formalized running of grand houses. And so you got this extraordinary, as I say, unintended consequence of Robespierre and his cronies eating in smart restaurants that had developed precisely because they'd chopped the heads off their bosses. Yes, well, they'd, well, they'd fled to England and were trying to get a good meal for, yeah. for the rest of their lives while, while they were there. <laughs> it also made me wonder, as you write at this time, this is when restaurants become larger enterprises. You have the invention of the stove, the, the more complex form of the stove, and you have a lot more people working there. I just w was wondering if, if the Revolutionary Wars, the Napoleonic Wars, where huge armies had to be assembled, put together, and fed by army cooks, led to this new kind of discipline, this sort of militaristic type organization that is so prevalent in the kitchen, even today, where you almost expect you know, sous chefs and undercooks you know, to, to salute. Well, it's not ranks. And it's not surprising that it's known as the battery de cuisine, is it? You know, and I think it was really the, the early the chefs of the early 19th century who formalized dining, who formalized the idea of different courses coming, who separated the sweet and the savory. You know, it was very much a medieval thing of sweet, savory appearing on the same plate. Uh, and, of course, you know, latterly, now that people are sort of putting sugar on, uh, salt on ice cream, people think that's novel, but of course it's not. It's, it's very much medieval. But I think that chefs have spent millennia trying to temper and control heat. And, you know, the, the, the most sort of up-to-date modern methods of cooking are all about the precise control of temperature. Um, in fact, it was uh, Alexis Soyer who really was the first person in London to, uh, um, you know, he, he took advantage of the, the new Victorian metropolitan gas pipes that were piped into people's houses. And the Garrett Club in Piccadilly was the first great restaurant. And it was Alexis Soyer's domain, and he created this amazing kitchen. It was the first time where, when they reopened the, uh, the, uh, the Reform Club, um, that the members actually went down and looked in the kitchen before they then went to look at their new library and, and dining quarters because they'd heard that this was the most extraordinary kitchen. And, um, and you know, it was all about the control of fire. And so chefs have long tried to be more precise than the last one. You know? I mean, um, there's a great book called The Cook's Oracle, written in 18, about 1810, where the, the writer goes to great lengths to castigate all books that have come before him because the recipes are too vague. And he goes, you know, at last I'm going to show you precise instructions. And you know, I wonder how often we get innovation in cooking and cuisine from famine, from starvation. Uh, so many of the great dishes we know in Chinese food, for example, come from people being forced to experiment when there's been a terrible famine, there's been a drought, or there's been a flood on the Yangtze, and so you need to find new ways of cooking things you didn't think you could cook as food before. Um, I, I went to, I've been to Iceland a few times, and I've been put under a lot of pressure to have what they call their national dish there, which is halkatla, which is fermented shark. And when I say fermented, I mean rotten. They, they get a Greenland shark 
and sort of bury it underground, weigh stones upon it, because it's actually toxic to eat the meat of a Greenland shark, and they, they let the, the natural rotting fermentation process destroy the, the toxicity of this shark, and it sort of becomes gelatinous. They produce it and serve it as this gelatinous food. And Anthony Bourdain said it was the most disgusting thing he's ever eaten in his life. So I refused to eat it uh, at, at the time. But I, I wonder if you've got any thoughts on that, about how innovation, does it come from plenty or from starvation? Well, there's nothing like limitation to exercise the mind, is there? I mean, I know, you know, personally, if you decide to give up meat, it makes you really think about eating fish. If you decide to not drink any more red wine, it makes you think about improving your knowledge of white. So when you, if you, when you impose limitations upon people, it does make you sort of, you know, think. And I think that's why COVID was quite good for restaurateurs, because it made them have to flex their, their wings and think carefully about what they did. And um, so... Chains of transport were broken down, so you yeah, have to and I think all that's quite good for the human spirit, because it makes you really have to think about how you can survive, how you can, you know, sort of, you know, retell the story of the world through food. A large part of your book is about the evolution of British cuisine, which is very lovely in a great many places these days. In the past it hasn't been, and you've been quite blunt about that. In fact, you quote the philosopher Bernard Levin who said in the 1960s that British restaurant food was basically, in his words, disgusting. Uh, many people blame that on the introduction of wartime rationing. What was going on during the wars, and, and why do you think that might have had an effect on the British palate and the kind of food British people well, made? Well, the, the period of rationing is absolutely fascinating because it was imposed um, partly in order to prevent the country from starving, so that if you controlled what people ate, then you would be able to fend off, you know, fend off the possibility of, of you know, when you had an you know, not a limitless supply, people would be able to cope and they'd get used to it. Rationing did, wasn't imposed upon the British public from, from day one. It was staggered. You know, and, it, and, and alongside it went a very detailed plan of, of marketing and PR. And, you know, first of all, there was the great National Registration Day in September of 1939, where for the first time, you know, every sort of man and woman had to register. And if you didn't, you wouldn't get your ration book, which was basically your passport to eat. There were two things that you had to, people said you had to take with you if your house was on fire, you know, your, your ration book and your gas mask. Those were the two most important things. And rationing was orchestrated by the government based upon largely uh, the First World War when the country very nearly starved. And so there was a very careful plan that had basically put into effect. Um, the man at the top was an extraordinary man called Lord Wilton. And this Fred, is the subject of your book, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes, funny enough. Eggs and anarchy, yes. <laughs> Eggs or anarchy. And he was a, a working-class boy from Lancashire called Fred Marquis, who uh, had a, was a great businessman, had a knack for retail, and ended up working for a Jewish family called the Cohens, who had a, f who had a firm called Lewis's. And he helped, he joined it when he was very young, helped over the, over the next 20 years build it up to be one of the biggest and most successful department stores in the UK, called Lewis's, no relation to John Lewis. He ended up buying Selfridge, Selfridges from Gordon Selfridge, and he was thinking of retiring in his sort of 50s and 60s um, and the, on the onset of war when Neville Chamberlain asked him to be Minister of Food because he quite clearly had demonstrated that he had serious organisational uh, skills. And so he was put in charge of the Ministry of Food. And um, in great secrecy in about July 1940, the entire offices of the Ministry of Food were um, exiled to Colwyn Bay, a sleepy little Welsh town um, and uh, no one seemed to have known about it. I mean, I came across memos from department to department asking where the Ministry of Food was, and not even not a single bomb fell on Colwyn Bay during during the Second World War. The enemy never discovered it was there. Um, they had every sort of department, including uh, BBC studios, radio studios. Um, they had studios for deciphering cables, and it was from there that the ration um, was organised. My wife comes, she's a brilliant cook, and she comes from a Singaporean food tradition which blends Malay, Chinese, Portuguese, uh, and Indian uh, cuisines. But her, her big foodie hero is Elizabeth David, the great Elizabeth David, the British, British writer. What kind of an impact did she have on British food in the post-war years? Well, 
she was the first person really to write about food post-war with a sort of romantic edge. She talked about her experiences through Europe. She talked about seeing tomatoes in, in stalls. Yes, Kim says she makes you feel like you're her companion yeah, in a marketplace. Exactly. She talked about yeah. places where she'd stayed where they hung basil and thyme from the, you know, the wooden eaves of the kitchen. Um, and she was the first sort of middle-class food writer to romanticize the idea of eating. And I think one of the reasons the Brits kind of got through the Second World War was because there, you know, there was a kind of patriotic uh, and, and, and sort of rather keen fervor. So we, we all survive on absolutely nothing. We all yes. eat the most disgusting food and be fine. <laughs> and it's one of the reasons why the British did survive and why, you know, I mean... You know, if you think about all the diets that have been imposed upon people, you know, whether it's the Stone Age or whether it's uh, intermittent fasting, there's only one diet that's been successfully imposed upon a nation, and that's the ration diet. And it does work uh, because, um, you know, rates of mortality, infant mortality were never better after the war. Um, dental health was never better. There was basically no instances of obesity. And now we have an era where we can eat what we want when we want, and we're fatter, and fatter than ever. But... Elizabeth David captured the minds of people and actually you know, described food in wonderful ways and uh, you know, sort of set alight the idea that there were possibilities and that food could be something you could enjoy rather than could just sustain you. In Australia, food was pretty how's your father for <laughs> a very long while. It was the arrival in the post-war years of large groups of migrants, from, first of all from southern Europe and then from Asia, that transformed the cuisine and the country at the, at, at the same time. It wasn't quite like that in Britain. Was, was British food more rescued by chefs? Or have I got that wrong? I don't know. No, I think, um, I, I think that chefs did... I mean, there's a very good argument to say that it was the Rue brothers who dragged British food into the sort of 20th century at the end of the 1960s. And Michel uh, and, and his brother Albert were private chefs they came from the private chef sphere. Um, Albert um, came from, from France and uh, worked for the Caslet family, well-off well family and who lived in Kent. And um, his brother, Michel, remained in France working for the Rothschilds. And um, they used to gather every summer at Albert's house in Kent and go up to London and eat in these terrible restaurants. And their wives could never really understand why they were so happy about this. Did they take a perverse enjoyment well, in a bad restaurant? They took a perverse enjoyment in it, but also because they realised there was an opportunity. You know, when you have a dire grey food scene, you realise there's an opportunity to do something decent. And they opened Gavroche. Um, and, uh, you know, Michel put together whatever meagre savings he had and drove over to London with a load of chef's whites he'd bought. And on top of the, the pile of those clothes in the back of the car... He put this uh, painting he had of the famous urchin from Les, Les Miserables, which, of course, was known as the Gavroche. And that ended up being the name of their first restaurant, which was on Lower Sloane Street in London. And, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a sort of glimmer of hope in a rather, you know, in a, in a town basically full of rather average Italian restaurants, which that's was basically the main scene for the rest of, for much of the 70s. I suppose that's leading from the top. It's, when I lived in England in the early 90s, by far the best food to be had was from the subcontinent. Uh, Indian, Pakistani, Bengali, Bangladeshi restaurants in the East End. Uh, cheap and really, really good food. Outstanding food at the time. But uh, the, the curries, you, you, the, the food that's served in those restaurants, how closely do they resemble the dishes that they originate from on the subcontinent? Well, I think in the same way that the British Army insisted that food that they ate in India be sort of mild and dull, that I think the, the Bangladeshi immigrants try to replicate that to try and keep the English happy. Um, and, but, you know, we've been eating curries for several hundred years. You know, our links with India go, you know, far beyond that. And you can see recipes for curries in, in, in 19th century cookbooks and so on. Um, but again, it's an example of how, you know, uh, chefs are sort of trying re to reinvent the wheel and so on. And, you know, we had rather a bland Bangladeshi cuisine, and then, you know, now we have a sort of acutely local, you know, literally, there are restaurants in Mayfair now that sort of focus on a small village in northern Bengal, <laughs> you know, so um, it's always good to have something to sort of, you know, rebel against. 
you write about the arrival of fast food, the innovations of the McDonald brothers, who set up the first, first McDonald's in California, which was taken over by Ray Kroc, and used all those technological innovations to produce fast food, reliable food that was the same no matter wherever you got it, and the origins of Taco Bell and others as well. I wonder if it had to be that way in the English-speaking world, because it was seen as a, a revolutionary thing to provide cheap food. Uh, they made a point at the time of saying, we're not serving food for teenagers anymore, this is for the family, and you deserve a break today, mum, you, let's go to McDonald's and so mum doesn't have to cook on, on, on this night. But then all these other cultures have had street food, good, far more nutritious, far more delicious food. I wonder why it had to be that way in the English-speaking world. What do you think about all that? Would I don't know. I mean, I think it's interesting that the, the McDonald's developed at the same time as the development of the motor car. You know, basically, the automation of Ford motor cars and the automation of, of the creation of cars very much mirrored the automation of food. And I think it was that idea of the excitement of it, you know, and those two things sort of went hand in hand. It felt like the spirit of the age, if you like. Um, I don't know why we haven't really had a, a, a spirit of food culture in the UK. I think you, you can probably, you can blame some of uh, our, our kind of, the fact that it took us rather a while to have a sort of culinary awakening on the Industrial Revolution because the Industrial Revolution basically savaged the, the original agrarian society uh, and the great excitement was to move to the cities and move you know, along with the times and the excitement of the factory and so on. And whereas I think if you look at Europe, a lot of the peasant cultures survived and that was rooted in seasons and rooted in the countryside, whereas we in Britain were more excited about technology and the, you know, the, the, the evolution of the tin can and canned food was far more exciting than the idea of uh, you know, a turnip in January. I remember seeing an episode of uh, one of those Gordon Ramsay shows where he drags some, some dreadful American so-called chef off to a proper Italian place around the corner and just asked this weary Italian chef what the principles of his cooking were and he said simplicity and freshness. Just straight off the top like that. Do you have basic principles you, you look to when you go to a restaurant these days? Um, uh, yeah, uh, if it doesn't have a tasting menu, that's quite good. Really? You don't like tasting menus? Uh, I try and avoid them. Why? Um, because I, there's only so much I can eat. And, and I often, I mean, I made the mistake a couple of years ago where uh, I, I, was, I go on a sort of northern foray to sort of eat in various restaurants, and I did a a 10-course menu, a 10-course dinner in a restaurant in Birmingham, an Indian. The next morning I got up and went to uh, Sheffield, had 12 courses for lunch, and then went to Leeds and had another 15 for dinner. And I just realized if I was going to do much more of that, I was going to keel over. So I, I understand how the theater of the tasting menu is great if you do it once in a while. But when every single provincial restaurant around the country is a tasting menu, you, you know, I literally just want to die. It's not very and social either, is it? Because you've, if you've got a group of friends around a table and you're all doing the tasting menu, the conversation's bad to get started. There's, someone's halfway through an anecdote yeah. and the waiter's come round again to say, yeah, now, there was a, listen to me, I've got to tell you something. I reviewed this place in London the other day and uh, every two seconds the waiter would turn up and tell us about the fact that you know, these particular scallops hand-dived with a special glove and the scallops were brought to the surface with great loving care and carried on a tray to the, to the truck that then brought them at a particular temperature to the restaurant where they were delicately laid onto coals of sustainable charcoal <laughs> made from English beech wood and then cooked precisely 96 degrees for three and a half minutes at which point the scallop was then taken and added to this bowl of the lute of pulverized cauliflower with a broccolini sauce, at which point the lobster beautifully curated. And with this dish, uh, you know, the wine, and he says, oh, I just can't deal with this, you know, I just can't do it, just shut up. And there is this thing where the chef is just so passionate about telling you about their life story, um, when you just, just want to eat and talk to somebody. Now there is a, you know, there is an excuse, that there are times when this really works, okay. And I have to say, I was in, um, Queenstown a few days ago. In New and, Zealand here, yeah. Yes. And there's a, a restaurant called Amersfield, and someone said, you must go to Amersfield, and it was a Monday. They opened specially for me, table for one. They dragged the chefs from their day off, and I sat there with Vaughan, great chef, and uh, he sort of threatened me with 23 courses, all of which tell his life story. And I said, can we just do like eight, maybe, <laughs> you know? 
But it was wonderful to have that and him tell me about all these dishes. But I can't do that all the time. You know, and there's only so much of, I mean, I admire chefs, but there is a reason why there's a kitchen and a door so they can stay in there. <laughs> you know, when I, when I, I offer a film MasterChef, and MasterChef is interesting because the chef brings you the food, right? And, and you kind of, oh, he, he cooked it? Oh, my God. That's why you want a waiter, someone nice and clean and pristine, not sweating. You know, sometimes you sort of see the sweat on the plate, and you go, oh, my God. <laughs> you got into trouble a few years ago at Waitrose magazine when someone wanted you to do an article on vegans, and you said, how about how vegans should be killed? It was a joke, but we're not in an age where people laugh much at jokes like that these days. Uh, have your views on veganism evolved since then, though, William? <laughs> Under threat um, of all sorts of things. I, I, you know, I'd never had a problem with, with, with vegans. Um, it was just sort of was a strange moment in my life where a flippant email became an international incident. It was a, it was a weird one because it, it annoyed me because actually I'd, we'd given vegans quite a lot of coverage. And I mean, I think we were the first food magazine in the UK to create an entirely vegetarian issue where I actually even refused adverts that weren't you know, plant-based and had a battle with our publisher to do that, and I was quite proud of that. And this email popped up into my Hotmail account, which at the time was where the loonies tended to email me. You know, you go on MasterChef and you get and the loonies kind of, you know, they either savage you on, um, on Twitter or they send you uh, rude emails on, on to my Hotmail account. It's now the only email I have, so I just get all the loonies and the normal stuff coming to the one account. But, and so this sort of, this girl emailed and said, you know, suggested a series on, on vegan cooking. And, you know, I'd spent the last sort of 15, 20 years cultivating the greatest minds and recipe writers to do stuff for me. And someone pops out of nowhere saying, assuming that, that because they're vegan, they can have an entire column. So I just flirted with her and sort of made some light jokes. And uh, next thing it was, it was on BuzzFeed, then the mail, and uh, my remarks were not taken out of context because I did say it. They're in an email, yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, remember my boss always used to say, never put in an email what you wouldn't run read out in court. And it's something I keep forgetting even now. <laughs> William, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank William Sitwell. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.